Welcome to the Catastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church, and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. I'm Joel Harrison, joined as always by my co-host David Taylor. Dave, I've noticed something. Mm. I've noticed something about our Facebook. Mm. I'm sometimes on Facebook. I don't want to be there mm. because it seems to me pretty much part of the decline of everything that is good in the world, but I'm there because we have a page. Mm. And I've noticed that we have more, I think it's more followers than likes. Mm. So you know how there's this function on Facebook? Yeah. You can like it, but you can also follow it. And I think following is secret, so you can't yeah. see the people. So we have more of them. So it makes me think, there's like five of them. Yeah. Who are these ghost followers? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, as I said last episode, you described us as an illicit pleasure. <laughs> exactly. 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 Uh, I know who I think it is. Do you, do you think there's people at Moore College like passing up, passing like, <laughs> USBs with the recordings of outside, they go out under, outside under the table? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> put, put it away. Put it away. Yeah. Yeah. No, I reckon. I reckon it's both the popes, Benedict. My boy, mm-hmm. Francis, my boy. Yeah, the Archbishop of Canterbury, clearly. Yeah, the ghost of Stanley. Yeah, yeah, and um, my mum, I think, is probably hate following us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the anti-pope. Yeah, yeah. That's they're trying to jet. get. They're trying to get both of us. Yeah. They're, they're pulling at our affections. One wants us. The other one wants us too. Yeah, but yeah. you know, I, maybe they don't know what the, what what they really want, and mm. that's what that shows mm. is that um. You know, they don't know if they've gone to the full level of liking yet. They want some semi-informed, post-liberal, <laughs> radical orthodoxy. Hey, we do this because no one else is. <laughs> That's you brought it on yourself, people. <laughs> we were just talking a, a bit before we recorded this about how, you know, there are people more qualified to be talking about some of these things than than we are. But uh, no one else is bloody doing it, <laughs> as far as we're concerned. We're not really listening to anyone else, but like, yeah. Surely there is. <laughs> Which then brings us to again, we never segue properly. We gotta find ways. We get we'll get better at that. So we're continuing with this discussion of cultural Speaking Marxism. of people that don't know what they're talking about. Hey! 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 <laughs> cultural Marxism part two. <laughs> Welcome. Um I'm gonna do a bit of the recap sure. here. So last week we looked at how there are conservative thinkers that seem to link this amorphous category of cultural Marxism to many of the threats they see in our contemporary culture. Things like um, uh, rising differences in sexuality and gender norms, definitions of gender, things like no platforming, political correctness in its amorphous way, increased censorship or speech codes and so on. Um, Now, Dave was discussing, especially he was taking us through his journey into Tasmania where um, his dark heart and uh, continued down this dark path. And he was talking about how he was saying this uh, term doesn't seem to have anything to do with Marx or critical theory, though, mm. especially those thinkers often associated with the Frankfurt School, in any straightforward way. Um, they don't seem to relate the actual concerns of the Frankfurt School to uh, the cultural moment that we seem to be participating. Even more than that, Dave was suggesting that these thinkers... They not they may not be always right, but that seems to be, of course, the mm. nature of interrogating a person's thought. Mm. But they do point to some real uh, 
possibilities, yep. some real resources for thinking through imaginatively mm. what it would mean to actually resist the sort of soporific effects of our culture. Yes. Right? The things that discipline us into understanding our identity as primarily consumers, for mm. example, um, that understand, uh, that reduce nature down to something no longer of intrinsic value, but something that is only determined in its value by exchange, yeah. the willing of parties and so on. Um, so Dave was suggesting that there's much more that can be said there. Um, and how um, and, and, and he mentioned a point at the end of last week where he said um, that the uh, what the criti- these critical theorists point to is this sort of resilience of capitalism, the way in which it can co-opt any form of resistance or criticism that is thrown at it. And this is um, seen quite prominently in Mm. our time, right? So feminism was once seen as a critique of capitalism Mm. and its rootedness in patriarchy, right? Uh, But now it seems to be we have this sort of wave of feminism that sees uh, female CEOs as the epitome of liberation. Um, we also get, you mentioned an example mm. just earlier. What was it about mining companies? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've just been noticing these ads. I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's Rio Tinto has been, because it's been Pride Month, have been advertising themselves with uh, this beautiful Cyrenic, um, uh scene of a proposal between two gay men, uh, one proposing to the other, proposing marriage. And then I was watching this ad thinking, oh, well, well that's an interesting uh, image and an interesting ad. And then you see a mine and then you see a steel mill, and then you see an airplane being made from the steel. You realize, oh, it's gay identity is being co-opted to sell mining. Mm. Um, whereas the kind of radical kind of queer theorists and people like Foucault and things like that would see gay identity or however you want to say it as a way of problematizing and resisting the dominant culture. Uh, whereas what the Frankfurt School scholars recognizes this ability of capitalism to co-opt into themselves different identities or different groups that are critiquing um, the capitalist system. I remember. And it's a beautiful. And Pride Month is kind of full of this. Yeah, um, I remember during Mardi Gras seeing Hush Puppies, the yeah. shoe, advertised as the official shoe of Mardi Gras. Yeah. Right? And you're thinking this is very, you know, but this goes beyond um, sexual identities, right? Mm. It goes into notions of authenticity itself. Mm. So when we talked about that in our previous yeah. episode, how it creates authenticity, notions of authenticity can create more food for the market. So yeah. um, the example I saw the other day on the internet was this bizarre ad for Subway, which it goes through this entire child's journey from birth to toddler to exploring the world to the wind in his hair as he rides through the outback until eventually he then comes back to his hometown and walks into a subway. It's like a Terrence Malick film, Mm. but for subway, right? So there's this co-opting that goes on there. Um, Now, the suggestion we were um, uh, raising at the end of the last episode was that instead of blaming this supposed cabal, and yes, I use cabal to refer to the conspiratorial (laughs) conceptions of it, right? This cabal of uh, radical academics, that is supposedly at the heart of all our cultural woes, um, the suggestion was made that we need to understand our current way of organizing society is actually maybe more more of the same, Mm. right? A trajectory that we've been on, not just simply since the 60s or the 50s, although those periods may have introduced Mm. new elements and so on, but actually something that's very much been embedded in the dominant traditions and ways of thinking in our modern culture for some time now. Yeah, and so, surprise, surprise, um, I'm, I'm going to say that the uh, problem is actually liberalism 
uh, Patrick Deneen and his wonderful books, uh, book uh, Why Liberalism Failed, uh, which I'd thoroughly recommend if you're at all interested in any of the ideas that I'm about to explore. Um, he said that uh, liberalism failed precisely not because of any external influences, but because it uh, became fully itself. It's a we we've just entered into a fully realized version of a system of thought or a system of social organization that has its origins 300, 400 years in the past um, and has nothing to do with the sexual revolution or the 1960s, although that that event in itself is actually just the full coming of age of this, this liberal term. So you might remember if you listened to our first episode, I think, we discussed um, at length how all of our major political disputes today are not between different poles, um, but are actually um, debates between different versions of liberalism. Um, it's an intra-liberal debate, um, 99% of the time, I'd say, in com- contemporary political discourse. So when I say liberalism, I should add, you might be hearing me think, uh, say something like, um, uh, the Democratic Party in the states versus the Conservatives in the states. What we're what we're saying is, um, both sides of politics are different versions of liberalism. So conservatives in in our language. Well, a basic way of maybe thinking, you yeah. know, how Alistair McIntyre describes it as a tradition. Yeah, and it's a tradition because it is a uh, political philosophy, a way of thinking embedded in our institutions, yeah. in which. Um, uh, the goal is to have a, say, a form of neutral moral state that mm. promotes the good of autonomy, yep. um, uh, the allowing for multiple conceptions of yep. the good. And in that way, because it does not allow for a shared understanding of the good to be yes. framing our political life together, yep. it forms a tradition. Yes. And it's a particular conception of autonomy itself. So that actually the, the change in what we mean by autonomy is one of the key changes that happens with the advent of liberalism, from what I understand. So we might think of it in in two ways. We could think of um, cla- classical liberalism or classic liberalism, uh, which kind of conceives of the state as existing to create the conditions necessary for simply the free exchanges of goods, where freedom is de- de- uh, defined by liberalism as kind of freedom from interference um, or, or restraint. Um, so if markets aren't free enough, uh, so this invo- this requires a kind of a strong state to maintain the conditions necessary for free exchange. And free, I might add, in- includes freedom from traditional restraints on buying and selling, mm. um, tr- traditional restraints on consumer desire and things like that. Um, and so the strong state then necessarily comes in uh, if it wants to engage in international trade and become uh, gets involved in things like wars of adventure um, to make sure the markets in, I don't know, Afghanistan are truly free and we need to bomb them as much as possible to make sure they're free um, so that they'll exchange with us. And then there's a a different uh, version of liberalism called progressive liberalism, which kind of is a more modern version of liberalism. Think of things like John Dewey, um, for example. Uh, Now, this is a nicer version of liberalism that acknowledges that people aren't innately or necessarily free until they have acquired certain requisite goods. So people aren't free if they're starving. People aren't free if they're if they have no home to live in. People aren't free if they don't have the education um, to allow them to have the career of their choice or uh, in line with their authentic self or things like that. And also freedom from discrimination being denied certain goods. 
Uh, so the strong, strong state here is necessary to secure goods for those who need it in order to have an autonomous existence, to have the free pursuit of my de desired goal regardless of di different kind of determining relationships. Um, and then there's a bit of also let's go and bomb other people as well, which <laughs> which is a necessary feature of this form of liberalism. I'd See, say you can. Well. I think you can think of it um, to put it in. You know, so we actually maybe we think of more of also a left liberalism that sees the state's role as freeing you from the binds that affect your yeah. self determination. Yeah. Right. So these could be traditional binds, family binds, um, church, and so on that are things that are seen as liberty restraining, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and then on the right, you have this freedom of contracts. So the state is used to support contract as the primary mode of exchange. Yes. Right, so Carl Pogliardi will say this results in the disembedding yeah. of um, the economy from society because it now is just the economy is its own definable thing defined mm. by um, the laws of supply yeah. and demand, for example. Now, these things can come together, mm. right? So, And they typically do, I think, um, in our day and age. So the epitome of this was probably like new labor under Blair um, in the UK, in which you have both um, the closing down of Catholic adoption agencies, yes, right? Because they were seen as um, restraining the liberty of um, gay and lesbian couples because mm. they were the Catholic adoption agencies only wanted to serve mm. um, heterosexual married couples mm. and in some occasions singles, right? Mm. And so Tony Blair says discrimination should not be allowed universally. There's a statement mm. he made. And so there was no exception made for these um, charitable uh, organizations. And there you've got this understanding that those organizations were liberty constraining, right? Mm. Preventing someone from exercising their self-determination. Mm. Um, these aren't organizations of the state, although some people try and say they're operating in the, the state sphere. Right? Mm. So you've got on the one hand that, but then on the other hand, you've got this marrying up to, this cozying up to finance, mm. uh, you know, in such a way that is help leads us to the 2008 financial yeah. crisis, yeah. right? So Tony Blair, it is when he launches this new labor, he says labor is now for free markets. Yeah. So you have both a free market of goods, but also a free market of ethics, yeah. right? So the two, those sort of right and the left in that sense kind of come together in which you have both the technocratic, the um, the managing of these markets, yeah. the managing of contracts and so on, and then also the undermining of institutions as always kind of proto-sites yeah. of potential oppression or self or restraining of self-determination. And the underlying telos mm. of both is this notion of autonomy, yeah. freedom. Yeah. But freedom understood as negative. And by negative, I mean um, the absence of restraint, yeah. right? That, um, that you can uh, therefore pursue your own conception of good. So I found this like to just give an example, mm. you know, you mentioned positive liberty about having goods of healthcare. And so yeah, yeah. I found when I lived in the States, it's really peculiar because every time people talked about um, healthcare, mm. it always seemed to be divorced from an understanding of what a flourishing life looks like. It was always seemed to be, well, you want healthcare so that you can get on with the business of being a bourgeois individual, yeah. right? So you can get on the, with the business of just consuming and living a life of liberty. Yeah. So even that positive freedom that you mentioned can mm. still be in some, in a certain sense, you know, framed as just simply another instance of pursuing one's own autonomy as the goal. Yeah. And so, um, absolutely. And so the, I think what the church needs to realize, um, is that that conception of autonomy, the idea of freedom and actually a flourishing human life, um, resides in the re freedom of restraint 
from obligations unless they are of my kind of active choosing, that conception of freedom um, is actually at odds with what a Christian thinks the human life is about. But the state being based on this notion of autonomy is actually training our thinking about what it means to be a human and what it means to be free and what it means to live a good life. So what starts off as what I'd say as a procedural move saying, well, there's dispute about what the um, the objective goods for life to be, uh, what, an object, what the objective goods to be pursued in life are. There's a dispute about that. And so we'll remain silent on those questions and let people get on the business of pursuing their own ends. That begins as a kind of methodological thing, given that there's conflict and controversy over that issue. That becomes a normative uh, move. So there are no objective goods. There, um, there is only uh, libertarian freedom uh, from restraint. See, and not, I think there's a, and I think there's an analogy here with nominalism as well. Yeah, yeah see, I, that's what I was going to pick up. I don't think this is just simply a. So nominalism. Methodolo- I don't think it's a, a methodological thing. I don't think this is just there's conflict and therefore we need to be neutral. For example, I think that's but how it, sta- it starts. No, because I think it starts in a more deeper way ontologically oh, yes. right, as well. Yes. Say so you take someone like Locke. So if yeah. we go back to Locke, and Locke says in the second treat in the uh, treatise on government. He refers to um, your obligations to your family. He says there's both a natural um, obligation you owe, but then he says also that the child exists in this proto-contractual state in which they elect their family, right? And now that has an understanding behind it that our society is fundamentally based on individuals who have been donated being, donated themselves by God, a bundle of rights and interests, right? That then they then offer up to society for then society to then give them back in some form as a form of protection. Whereas classically, Christians would think of, why do we gather together as a society? They would say for the ends of communion. Yes. So Aquinas would say this, or Hooker, Richard Hooker Mm. says, we gather together because we want to live well. Yeah. We gather together because we desire sociality, right? Whereas on this understand, other understanding, we have no. There are individuals that have been granted these, yeah. this power, yeah. essentially, and then they can contract to the family or contract to society, and yeah. so on. Or there, there is there is something about human nature that means this is its goal, and not living in accordance with in this, uh, not structuring our common life in this particular way um, goes against our duty to recognize that particular good or that particular purpose of human existence. Um, and, yeah, that's why I'd, I'd actually link it with earlier moves that happen in metaphysics, actually. Mm. Um, but that's probably too long a conversation. But all, all I would say is this move, this, this changing conception of what it means to be human, what it means to be free and what it means to have a good life, that inevitably shapes the way that we think. And so I think that that way of thinking has infiltrated even Christian thought and discourse at at, um, our particular moment. Um, And so today, even in serious debates around ethical and moral issues, you'll see conservative and progressive Christians, to use horrible generalizations in in terms of those terms, um, uh, trying to argue with each other using just the language of liberalism, which I would say extends to things like, so the moral vocabulary of liberalism being things like utility, autonomy, rights, and equality, I don't think there's much more available to it. Um, and so you'll end up having people from different parts of the Christian commune, uh, community basically shouting 
um, their version of those types of arguments at each other on a particular issue. And so if you if you take, for example, the issue of uh, the recognition of LGBT people in the church. So I'm someone who actually hopes that the church might find the necessary language within our tradition to be truly hospitable to our LGBT plus brothers and sisters. Yet most of the voices that I hear that are seeking that kind of move can only do so utilising the language of liberalism. They don't draw from the kind of ontological, um, metaphysical, kind of theological resources of the church. Instead, they kind of only, their own recourse is to um, arguments around autonomy, utility and equality. Yet at the same time, you kind of see the same thing happening with um, uh, conservative Christians um, who wanting to affirm a traditional understanding of human sexuality, particularly in their discourse around um, uh, their right to teach a particular ethic. And so it ends up being a, just a, a different version. Uh, it, it, it's argued for on the basis of their individual autonomy to express a particular view rather than that the expression of that view having a particular purpose or a function in society. Um, both of the times you, you see the reduction of moral discourse to this discourse that should be foreign to Christian um, language uh, being basically the only falling back position. Uh, and there are people. major consequences to yeah. that. So one is that um, it's not clear why this then is important to our common life. Um, why would I give it value yeah. if it's just simply an instance, like any other instance of individual autonomy? Um, there's also a siloing that can take place. So I always remember um, writing on this about uh, the issue you were raising, and there's a great piece by uh, a, bunch, a group of Episcopalian scholars who are attempting to argue for, in precisely the terms you're saying, within the... Uh, vocabulary and grammar of the Christian tradition mm. for forms of recognition. And they open of actually, yeah, and yeah. they open with a apology in which they say, you know, the appeal to some of this more liberal discourse of mm. rights sets up a communicative barrier. Yes. That's because right. we're appealing to our own discrete um understanding of the good yeah. and 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 the meaning of nature and so on. That then we're asserting upon the world as uh, something that must necessarily be recognized without any sort of mediation of yeah. the community. So it allows us to silo ourselves. Same with, you know, what you're saying with religious liberty. Or even I, I get so frustrated when I hear the conservative discourse around we all have a worldview. Yeah, yeah. Because that just seems to be another way of saying the marketplace of ideas, yeah. right? In which you must respect me for my worldview, you know, I respect yours, but it leaves people in this silo in which yeah. you're trying to say, well, we should have this neutral arbiter, but then in ways these private interests aren't particularly important yeah. <laughs> because everyone has one, so they're equally valid but equally arbitrary and potentially yeah. equally meaningless. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like so it seems like in in this mo- moment, particularly with this um, the issue of same sex relationships, which is kind of um, a very hot button issue has been for the last fifty years in the church, kind of thing. Um, it seems like what's necessary is to actually come together as a church to talk about what is the meaning of the body, what is the nature of embodied life, um, what is the purpose of um, sexuality um, and things like that and how is it orientated, what are, what are, how, what are our duties in, in, as, term, in, as far as recognitions of particular ends. Those are all substantive questions about the nature of being, um, the nature of um, our participation in um, all sorts of things that I won't go into. 
But um, uh, but that's the very thing that liberalism has stripped from our moral, moral vocabulary, um, and yet we keep insisting that securing Christianity is somehow tied to securing liberalism and capitalism when they're the very things that are making our ethical, moral, and political claims unintelligible. Mm. Um, so there's all sorts of areas that you can see this playing out in, I think. Um, well, I mean, let's just take for a moment, um, you know, how does it come about that you have within, uh, why is, why is let's think about why is capitalism at, at heart antithetical mm. to a Christian conception of the good? Um, because you have an understanding that what is of value it has no intrinsic worth. Mm. The good that is produced has no intrinsic worth. The body that is engaged in labor has yep. no intrinsic worth has no um, dignity to oriented, oriented towards certain ends. Mm. But rather their value is because they, are, um, they, they meet a certain exchange value, mm. right? That what uh, is given value is what we're able to commodify. Yeah. What is given value is what we're able to produce as a good because yeah. somebody desires it. Yeah. The mere willing of something yeah. creates it and as so a good. And this is a radical departure from kind of um, classical Christian um, conceptions pre, of freedom, pre, right? Conceptions uh, of uh, pre-Christian conceptions of freedom, and also the market. So, if you think about the pre-modern market, was an was literally a marketplace where people would come together and have to look each other in the face, and they would exchange things based on the assumption that the price being paid in exchange is somehow related to the natural price of that thing, <laughs> because of all sorts of different things. This idea that commodities actually have a natural value, and it was immoral to charge more than that. But then there's also the assumption, like you, there's the the fact that you're actually looking your neighbour in the eye as you're making the exchange. Um, but but they are also in a shared moral universe as you're mm. engaged in that exchange. And so with uh, the rise of kind of capitalism and liberalism, I think it's like Locke, um, who sought to unleash um, the productive power of humanity from these kind of arbitrary traditional bound. Uh, boundaries around exchange and industry, um, uh, markets became abstract. So you have the market rather than a physical marketplace. Um, and, uh, and persons become abstract. And persons become abstracted as They're well. They're now labour for profit. Yes. You know, as opposed to the idea that I as a labourer am investing my creativity in a mutual enterprise yeah. and producing something that may be of benefit to my community and yeah particular to that particular community's character. Yeah. See, I think this is interesting because if we bring it back to cultural Marxism a little bit as well, that um, I think what we're disciplined into then is an understanding that in all these different spheres, we operate as consumers. Yeah. So what I find, to go back to cultural Marxism a little bit, what I find really infuriating sometimes when you hear this discussion about We talk about Marxism, it in counselling even. Right, okay, is, is that there's this assumption that the university is this hotbed of cultural Marxists, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. This hotbed of cultural Marxists who are just aching to bring down yeah. the West and so on, right? And you think, well, not really. <laughs> I mean, just there, certainly there'd be some that would see the West as paradigmatically oppressive, right? Mm -hmm. And and reify the West in that yeah. way, that there is something called the West that we can reify as just simply a source of oppression, as opposed to the West being also incorporating perpetual criticism and so on. Mm. Um, or there is a certain kind of soft postmodernism that you can get in some disciplines, I think, probably, where you get this kind of like choose your own adventure married with 
seeing all difference as hierarchical. But largely, I think the modern universities, at least that I've experienced in yeah. multiple locations, right, um, are framed by sort of a market mentality of yeah. consumption and laborers in order to fuel that consumption. So we focus on frictionless environments. So all those things that people think is cultural Marxist, you yeah. know, um, developing codes for... Zone of non-interference. Uh, zones of non-interference. You know, the idea that a student um, shouldn't be challenged by uh, certain critical ideas that might may question their identity. That is creating a zone of non-interference that allows, that is in ways just a further extrapolation of what Locke called having a property in one's yeah, own yeah. self. Yeah. You know, having the capacity to cultivate and determine yourself as a form of property, yeah. right? And and this is not academics necessarily because no. most academics are actually disciplined in the sense that they're inundated with stuff, yeah. right? Like most people in their workplace inundated with so much stuff that to actually conceptualize critical thought is quite difficult. <laughs> now, I actually think that's an argument for yeah. having why having very good universities that have financial independence yeah. and their own authority, there's an uh, that's an argument for more public funding yeah, and more yeah. things or, or even just the idea that it could be its own institution, right? Mm. Because then it actually has the auton autonomous mental space to be critical. But this is, but the, my point is that generally these ideas of the frictionless environment, yeah. in order to create um, product, in order to fuel productivity yeah. or have brand management or create graduate capabilities and mm. so on, none of these things are necessarily framed by this sinister notion of yeah. cultural Marxism, but actually seem more, to my mind at least, they seem much more oriented towards changing education yeah. into another form of market freedom. Yeah. And to, to return to, to Locke just um, very briefly to finish up with, um, one of Locke's, uh, and then, you know, it's even there in Hobbes as well, um, and then through to Rousseau and Mill and, and people like that, is a fundamental re a shift in what... Uh, what we understand as the role of desire, and so um, and its relationship to freedom. So, in the classical world, and I'd say in the in the Christian tradition as well, freedom was actually understood in terms of autonomy as a capacity to rule over your own emotions. That is to bring your emotions into line so that they don't over rule over you. You rule over them. So part of that was ordering your desires. Augustine talks about this um, considerable at uh, considerable length. Um, that view shifted to, uh, the view shifted around uh, desire to, so that desire was, was actually where freedom was to be found. So uh, you are free insofar as you are free to pursue your desires, whatever those desires happen to be. Um, that's, that's the modern understanding of autonomy and desire. And this actually um, uh, bled over into our understanding of nature as well. So nature itself became uh, an object of human desire um, or something that needed to be manipulated um, and altered and changed to suit arbitrary human desire. And so Locke considered um, our, our capacity to make, to subordinate nature to human desire and need as the thing that grants us ownership over property. So if an Indigenous community is living in a, say, desert region and chooses to construct its society in such a way that it lives within the natural resource boundaries um, that are set for them by nature, those people don't deserve their land because they are living in subordination to nature, whereas the human goal is to make nature subordinated to our desires. Mm. 
Now, how are we meant to do Christian ethics if that's the underlying con- conception? And you see this playing out today in all sorts of ways. So if you think about reproductive technologies, that the, the body should not be a boundary to my, my reproductive program or whatever it happened to be. But you also see it with people denying climate change, for example. There can't be natural parameters that should limit my consumption because mm. um, it, it's fundamentally at odds with the whole liberal project. Mm. Um, but how are we meant to do Christian ethics when that is the underlying assumption? And so I would say, and w- what we've been saying since we started this program, <laughs> is that if we want to make Christianity intelligible, we, don't, it, we, we shouldn't be so worried about this, this, this radical, free radical intellectuals from the 1960s. It's actually there at our, the foundations of our very, the very fabric of our society mm. um, in, in the dual phenomena. Which of, raises, I mean, this is a question I think we'll have to pick up. Yeah. Uh, later as to why why do we why do we do this to ourselves, David? <laughs> <laughs> what what is it within us that creates this masochistic? You know, I mean, there are just really interesting questions here about yeah. complicity and lifestyle, for example, yeah. or the foundational conceptions of individualism that maybe we've touched on when we yeah. talked about brittle fundamentalism in that episode. Yeah, so you know, that, much- that prevents us from actually developing a rich metaphysic essentially to say what is it to be created persons pursuing that goal of communion in in a created environment, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's much, (laughs) it's much safer and easier for it to say there's a few ideas that popped up 50 years ago that if we can challenge those sufficiently with words, um, then we'll be right. And I can go on with my 10 mortgages. But if we want to say, which is what I want to say, that we need to fundamentally restructure society to make theistic claims intelligible, that's a much harder job, (laughs) Uh, which is actually going to make life less comfortable because we're going to have to think about um, our approach to economics. We're going to have to think about the way in which we order families. We're going to have to think about um, our obligations to our neighbours and things like that, and we're actually going to have to act on them. Mm. Um, So actually... Having an alternate, uh, an alternative I mean, structure a, to society. We do a podcast. <laughs> um, is is much harder than just blaming it on a few intellectuals from from Germany. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't blame it on intellectuals. <laughs> I've got a I've got a job to do. <laughs> well, that is an end to my um, ranting and raving. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please like us on Facebook. Search for us. Um, like us. Don't just follow. No, okay. Follow you do, and do, like us. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Um, share us as well. Drop us a review. They always really, really help. Uh, follow us on Twitter at, at UCAT underscore podcast um, and retweet us and stuff like that there. It all helps us to get our name out there. But uh, thank you so much for joining us and join us next week as we talk about the wonderful BBC program Fleabag.